0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cochellano. How you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Thank you very much. And happy anniversary of a kind to you. Is This is this <laughs> 30 years to the day, I think, since you moved to this fine country. Yes, it is 30 years
1: to the day. Uh, August 17th, 1992 was the day I arrived, uh, in, in my wife and I arrived in, in the UK um, for what we thought would be a year. And we've been yeah, here that's ever since. the way things tend to be. <laughs> right. okay. And I had a, I had a, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it wasn't just kind of like when you enter the country as a tourist, because I had, I had a, an interview with an immigration officer, and uh, a medical exam. I had to produce my med- I had to bring my medical records. Really? Right back. Okay, okay. I don't think I had, I had to do exam. any of that. And they were all kind of shades. If you've seen, The Godfather Two and Vito Andolini. Who will become Vito Corleone yeah. fails his medical exam and is locked up. <laughs> so, because the guy actually looked at my kind of chest X ray and and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I didn't have it any... and it was in we the... had lots of hoops to jump through but no not, it was none the of bowels of Gatwick Airport no, and I had this um, this this uh, very interesting experience entering the entering the UK I would only been to the UK once before a brief trip to London when I was in college um, and I came intending to stay for a year and have been here for thirty.
0: Congratulations. Plus, Thirty I and hope, counting. I hope you should celebrate with the appropriate British food tonight, or something fish and well, chips. Well, go
1: so. to America tomorrow.
0: <laughs> There's a symmetry to that, right? Uh, the big news story continues to be uh, the uh, seizure by the the FBI of a, a number of documents uh, from uh, Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's estate in Florida. And so we thought today we talk about documents and 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 who documents belong to and things that happen to documents, documents that are stolen, documents that are bis, uh, misplaced, documents that are destroyed and sort of make sense of, you know, how Americans treat documents. Because I think this is, a, you know, it, it speaks to, I think, this this current moment about, about who these documents belong to. Trump says they're his documents. Um, you yeah, know, the law says something quite different. Uh, but, but who how do Americans relate to documents?
1: And, there, I mean, one thing I suspect we're not going to get into based on our, our preparation, David, but that's interesting about the Trump thing is this whole question of classification, mm. which is a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, there's always
0: always been secret documents. But the classification system is from the 50s. Right.
1: right yeah. That's right. and And... Former President Trump has claimed that he had the authority, uh, presidents do have the authority to declassify mm. documents, but he claimed that everything he took was declassified, or he has claimed in the yeah. past few days, simply by virtue, by kind of a blanket declassification he that he did by virtue of his having them there declassified, sure.
0: and that's not true. Well, that's, also, that's yeah. not true, and it's also not one of the things that was listed in the search warrant. The no. search warrant like, doesn't actually mention the classification scheme, it's just simply that there are government documents that he has that he shouldn't have. Um
1: And the claim and the search warrant, which was unsealed at the end of last, after our last episode, Mm. uh, the justification for this is is violations of or possible violations of the Espionage Act, Mm. which antedates the modern classification system. Mm. So the 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 classification question is an interesting one, but it's not directly germane to this question. So we're we're probably not going to spend that much time on that today.
0: Right. One of the things about I think Americans have, I mean, I guess lots of country people do this but but have a very special relationship with some documents you think about the the way in which people go to visit the national archives today and and see the constitution see the declaration of independence um, or try to steal them in movies as as cases may be you know that, that that's not actually you know if you go to those those sites the way those documents are protected that actually isn't always the way i think americans have related to to documents
1: yeah I mean I was at the National Archives in the spring as you might recall and, and, and visited those documents, documents and viewed those documents um, and it's a very interesting place to go because it says a lot about American civic religion the way they're presented and the way people kind of, people are very kind of hushed and seriously. Yeah. It's like visiting a cathedral.
0: And the, the documents, they are humetic, hermetically sealed. They're yes. in like argon gas or something, which supposedly doesn't react to the documents. And they've got systems in place in case there's a, a war. I mean, to make the documents drop into like an underground bunker or something. It's crazy, right? There's a lot of stuff. Well, it's
1: not crazy. It's just there are lots of precautions in place to protect these documents, which you can't read very well. No, exactly. You're looking at them and you're like, oh yeah, it kind of looks looks like like the Constitution of the Declaration Mm -hmm. of Independence. But if
0: you look at the way in which the Constitution has been treated, like the physical paper has been treated over the years, the way it is now is not the way it always has been. It's actually been treated in a fairly cavalier way for for much of its history
1: yeah David can you tell us I mean you did the research yes. on this I didn't so I don't want to take credit for it tell us so about the history of the Constitution not the history of the Constitution as a doc as a as a kind of structure of government but as a, the, the physical
0: constitution what, okay what happened? so they had the convention they write the thing at that point that I'm familiar with yeah good <laughs> listeners also familiar with uh, that we won't go in detail about the Then it's basically held on to by the secretary of the Constitutional Convention, a guy by the name of Roger Alden, who I had never heard of. I gotta confess I've spent
1: a lot of time. Thirty plus years years studying this stuff. And if you'd put a gun to my head and asked me to name the secretary of the constitutional convention, I couldn't have done
0: it. So he's so he's got it for a while basically in his personal possession then it gets shifted over to the first Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson who basically gets responsible for dealing with all kinds of keeping stuff he's like you know in charge of census records and you can tell me more about yeah,
1: it yeah I mean it's interesting because the the secretaryship of State in the beginning had a slightly different brief than the Secretary of State does today so whereas the Secretary of State today is responsible for Foreign Affairs, it, yeah. mainly. And that was part of the original brief. And it was also things like the post office and the census and record keeping. And Jefferson liked this. He had quite an archival kind of streak to him and an archival interest. He was a collector of early records of Virginia, for example, yeah. that he subsequently had published. So it suits him. But so well, he, he, I'm, sure he was ha- I'm
0: sure he was happy to have it. But then it gets like put in storage in a variety of places in, in, in D.C. Um, or, and in New York and Philadelphia. Uh, in so is it moving with the yes, document? yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, but like, it, people, who's in charge of it at various points in time? It's 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 you know, it's not a high priority necessarily. The physical thing in eighteen fourteen, when uh, the British invade um, and this and DC is, is attacked, they basically take the the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, chuck it in into one of the carts that's departing the city with other government stuff, so it doesn't uh, get destroyed. Then, um, after the that for basically the next century, it's in various sort of storage capacities. It, for it spends forty years in the Treasury Department, uh, just sort of hanging out. It's at the Washington Orphan Asylum for reasons I'm not named. I've been able to ascertain for eleven years on display. So it's at, on display there in an orphan asylum. You know, so not even in a you know a major government building. Then it's in the State Department basement for fifty years from. 1875 uh, till uh, 1921, and the 1921 year become clear um, in uh, maybe later in the episode. Uh, But sort of it's, and at that point it gets moved into the Library of Congress and then into the National Archives. So, but it's not like this venerated thing that people are keeping close tabs on. People are passing it around, you know, it's sort of the, hey, you want to see the Constitution? We can show you the Constitution here. but
1: there is veneration for the content of the Constitution, Constitution. Yes. during that period. Oh, for sure. Uh, so we have a kind of disconnect between the Constitution as a, as a notion and the Constitution as a physical artifact.
0: And presumably the same, something similar is true of the Declaration of Independence yes, as well. Yes, I think I the think sort of, as relics, they become something very different in the 20th century.
1: Okay, and I, I want to make clear that I am not in favor of the abuse of documents Mm. and that I think historical documents should be treated with care. But what I would like to ask, I'm playing devil's advocate here, does it matter in the sense that there were multiple copies of the Constitution? We we know the content of the Constitution. Mm. The reason the Constitution is important is because of what it says, not the piece of paper that says it. So apart from... Scholars who really want to, you know, really originalism, who want to like study every single pen ink stain on the paper, and and we should preserve these things, but but do we venerate these things? Are we worrying about the wrong stuff?
0: I I think sometimes we are worried about the wrong stuff. I mean I think the of people who, who then remember people who probably go and visit the Constitution physically like you did and go and see it in the National Archives where you can't actually read it, it's probably greater than people who actually read it closely. You know, and I think, the, you know, in terms of what's important is actually the, the, the text of the did thing.
1: You, do you think, I mean, how many people visit the National Archives M- every
0: year? Millions, millions of people. Like, that's a very busy tourist site.
1: Well, it was you know. busy when I was there and they keep you moving, they keep you, you know, they, they keep things moving. But, you know, all law students have to read the Constitution. How many closely. law
0: students do you think there are versus right. tourists in DC? Okay. okay anyway, uh, the,
1: uh, yeah, it's a wrong argument. Okay. But but but, but, but uh, I'm interested in the uh, so there's a what you're suggesting is well you're not suggesting mm. it, it's you're demonstrating yeah. is so for much of the say first century or century and a half of the Constitution's life, mm. the physical document has not been as important as the content. Mm. But since then, we've decided that the physical document's really important in the past yes. century, since 1921. We can go yeah, yeah. on 1921 in a minute. Uh, is that... Are we more responsible? Have we been more responsible in the last century? Or are we, getting, are we getting it wrong?
0: Well, I think it's interesting, you know, if this is one of the two most important documents in American history, the fact that, like, it gets treated like this. Nobody knew where it was. <laughs> you know, the fact that, you know all the other documents of of importance were treated even worse, right? And so thinking about who documents belong to and where they are and kind of record keeping, you know, if the Constitution gets, you know, shuffled around uh, in a sort of indiscriminate kind of way, just think about all the other government documents, all the other papers that are important, all the ways in which that, that kind of archival practice, you know, was not a priority. You know, one of the things that did happen with, with, You know, early presidents and actually with most presidents until the the quite recent ones, if they wanted to take stuff home with them at the end of their term, they could. Right, so Thomas Jefferson could have taken all of his papers home with him from from D.C. when his term over and do with them whatever he wanted to. You know, edit them, burn them, you know, sell them to people, you know, give them gifts as Christmas gifts. Who knows? Um, so we, I think we, our relationship to texts are different. Well, one thing that happens at the same time, however, which I find quite mm.
1: interesting, is it's during the 19th century, mm. especially the kind of 1830s, 40s, and 50s, mm. when we see the beginning of big documentary editing projects. Oh, sure. Now, not, not the ones that, not the modern ones, but but the antecedent, the grandparents mm. of, the, of the modern ones. Uh, and so we see, um, the publication in my own field of something called Forces, Peter Forces. Uh, he Peter Force publishes this uh, documents at large, uh, mm. American Archives, he calls it, I, I believe. Mm. Uh, it's a collect. These are massive volumes of collect a bunch of documents yeah. from the revolutionary era and publish them. Um, you get. Um, you know, the descendants of the Adamses in Washington starting to edit their family, their antecedents, their hmm. famous antecedents, papers and publish them, and uh, there's a desire to publish. And Jefferson, who I said had this archival instinct, actually said, "I mean, so he collect he himself collected early Virginiana um, and quite rare stuff, but then." During his retire, during his presidency and his retirement, oversaw the public the beginnings of publication projects. There's something called Henning's Statutes at Large, which is a collection of all early Virginia documents and laws that's published uh, under his auspices. And so, and th- his belief was that you know, this is the only way to preserve these things in the long run. That basically, a single copy of something is really vulnerable, mm-hmm. and the only way to really safeguard it is to make sure you publish copies of it. Yeah. Uh, and so we're seeing. So, so it seems to me there's a slight tension between the desire to preserve and disseminate these things through publication, Asian, yeah,
0: versus keeping the original. Because there's lots of we have lots of documents from that time period. Where we don't have the original anymore. That's we right. Do, we have this published version. Yeah, you've that. got I'm a sure. version
1: from the 1840s. Yeah, that, that no, that's it exactly. That's that's absolutely true. And. Because there are fires and because things get lost, and we'll talk about mm. stealing things Thanks soon. Jam. I mean, particularly for some of these more famous individuals, of course, people you know, there's a market to sell their signatures oh, to be sure. and all. You know,
0: well, uh, well, one of the things that's always striking to me, whenever I do archival work, is you know that the record is always incomplete, right? That, that 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 the work we do as historians when we go into the archives and we read people's letters and diaries and whatever other documents. You know, we're always amazed about what has been saved and how, you know, the work of archivists to save those things. But that we also sort of at the same time sort of constantly mourning all the stuff that hasn't been saved for whatever reason, either because it's been destroyed or lost um, or misplaced or, or or stolen, as you point out. Right. Um, you know, and both of us are dealing with in our in periods where, where if we... Uh, if somebody were to steal some of the documents we, we work with, they could uh, probably retire on that.
1: Well, if they could sell them once they, they stole, stole them, them. yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right. But there's but, definitely a market for these kinds of. Of things. course, and and of course, we don't know what we don't know. Yes, paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, uh, in, in the sense that there are documents missing. You know, we, we, we don't have a complete aware. We don't have mm. a complete record
0: of what the document should, should be, be, yes, and therefore we don't necessarily know what's missing. To be sure. And sometimes we do know that things are missing, and it's sort of immensely frustrating to know that, that you know maybe out there somewhere this lost document exists, but but haven't been able to find it. So David, yes. why is 1921 such an important year? Okay, so 1921 in terms of, of, of preservation is very important, because in 1921 there was a fire at the Commerce Building, and the Commerce Building was storing a lot of records including lots of the original census returns, including the 1890 census. And the fire destroyed 99% of this census. Um, And some of it was destroyed by the fire. Some of it was destroyed by the gallons of water that firemen poured upon the the records to keep them from putting out the blaze. Uh, And then the fire occurred sort of like 4.30 4.30 in the afternoon and so once the fire was extinguished everyone basically went home and the records that were left were sort of ankle deep in water overnight um, oh my God. which means if you're doing work that relies on census records you get to 1890 there's just sort of there's like 1% of it that's left but the other 99% is gone so if you're doing a genealogy if you're trying to sort of trace people through time you know it is you end up with this sort of blank spot for for 20 years between 1880 and, and 1900 because of this missing census which is obviously a very interesting time period in terms of immigration and when people's ancestors you know so there's uh, it's an enormous loss um this and there was an outrage when, when this happened um and people said well maybe we actually need to sort of think critically about where our government documents are, because you know, the census stuff was in the Commerce Department, some other stuff was in the Treasury, and who knows where the other things were. Uh, and it's you know, this fire that leads in part to Congress creating the National Archives, a government entity that has responsibility for carrying and preserving our nation's critical documents. Um, so
1: that's really interesting, uh, just if I could make an observation. Hmm. The Espionage Act, which uh, seems to have caught Trump, hmm. or at least that's according to the, the warrant, is what, 1917, 1918? Yep. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a wartime measure adopted during the First World War. But we get three years later the creation of the National Archives, which also seems to have uh, well, entangled yeah. President Trump. Or the, or the creation of the... Yeah, they, uh, they
0: actually don't create the National Archives uh, until 1934. Right, but, but they, yeah. the,
1: the, the process begins. Yeah, exactly. so, so it's, it's a... There's a kind of hinge, if you will, approximately Mm. a century ago ago when there's a slightly different attitude toward, there's a change in attitude Attitude, towards the preservation of these documents. And and started
0: taking them, you know, and so there's a real search at that point to find government documents because they really didn't know where there wasn't really great record keeping, which leads to actually one of the more interesting sort of rediscoveries of documents that I've uh, come across. Um, There was a guy who worked in, in the house, a guy named South Trimble. Who was told by Congress, like, look, we know there are documents in this building, go find them. And so he and his staff are basically house cleaning in, in 1937. And he finds in a disused storage space in a room they didn't even know was there a um, huge stash of shelves and shelves of documents from the early House of Representatives and the early Senate just shelves and shelves of things that people thought had been lost, thought had been destroyed um, in in the War of 1812, destroyed, and other kinds of things. But it's records from, you know, the 1890s that were lost for more than a century that are basically were uncovered and then passed over to the National Archives. Um, so there's a real sort of rediscovery of, of documents uh, in the 30s. Um and you, you start to get, so,
1: so I'm, I'm very interested mm. in the history of these documentary editing projects. Mm. So uh, you see another surge in this period, in the, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, the, the, the first modern edition of Washington's papers is edited by a guy named John C. Fitzpatrick in the 30s and 40s. Uh, you get, uh, there are loads of collections, territorial state papers, mm. things like this are Published in this period, and I suspect, and I never really made this connection before, thanks to you, uh, that in part it's because people are starting to try and get on top of what they actually have, and so they're uncovering things and rushing to get them in print, I suppose. Yes,
0: no, I think that's definitely the, the case. So, I mean, I think we got you know, a couple different categories of things here you know, uh, of, of what happens to documents and why they sort of go astray. I mean, some documents are stolen you got some idea. ideas. There's lots of examples of stuff that, that is stolen for a variety of reasons. Yes, if you go to the National Archives website, David... They've got, uh, a, yeah, they got a program for they, returning stolen stuff.
1: It, you can find a page within there, which is very interesting reading that I commend to everybody, called Notable Thefts for the National Archives. Oh. So they're the National Archives. They're very upfront about this stuff. And so they, there's an account. They, there are a series of... Yeah, it's it, it's a rogues gallery of people, and mm. there are photos of them um, who've stolen things from the National Archives over the years, um, going back the first case they have, and undoubtedly there was something before mm. that, but the first one they, they cite is the is a couple from 1963, but going down to the very recent past, and so people have been stealing stuff from the National Archives for a good long time. One that came up. That was cited, uh, has been cited a lot in the past week because of the connection to President Trump mm. is Sandy Berger, who was a, a National Security Advisor under Bill Clinton, um, who took classified documents from the National Archives several times. What he would do, and this is a kind of MO that you mm. get, you've worked in archives, I've worked in archives, you know, during visits he would hide documents in his clothes. And take them out. And I suspect he wasn't searched because he was a national security advisor. And, 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 and all of us, you know, if you, when you work in an archive or, or, or a rare books library or what, what have you, usually you have to divest yourself of your bags and coats and things sure. like that. And put everything in a locker. And you're normally only allowed to bring in a, a laptop and or a pad of paper. Mm. What seems to be a common theme with the people, researchers who are stealing stuff, is they're they're putting stuff in their pads of paper mm. and walking out with them. Uh, there's a whole subgenre or a, a subset, I should say, of people who are, work in the archives or work in libraries who are stealing mm. stuff, who I think are in a different category. I think Sandy Berger's interesting because he was purloining stuff, hiding things in his clothes and walking out. Again, I suspect he wasn't subject to the same level of the scrutiny necessarily as a researcher. Yeah, the fascinating thing about I the think is-
0: Hiding the stuff under a trailer? Well, the fascinating thing about about the burger situation is so that he does he stole the documents in two thousand and three. Yeah, that's right. And it was in part in the, uh, uh, to prepare for te- he claimed part prepare for testimony in the, the 9-11 commission. Some of these are documents that he wrote, right? So like he's stealing, you know. So so it it like whose document anyway. But uh, most of them, the rest of them, as you point out, are are people who are doing this. For, for money right and there's lots and lots of examples of people stealing literally hundreds of documents from the national archives and people do this from other archives as well um, and, and making a lot of money from it but people steal from the national archives one thing that links all of them is that when they get caught they are punished like they go to a bunch of these guys go to jail yeah the list of people if you go
1: to this again this this webpage of the national archives they're all being fined Many of them are sent to jail mm. um, for sometimes brief periods of time, sometimes long periods of time. Um, Berger was given probation and fined.
0: He um, it was fined fifty thousand dollars. Right, like it was it was a not insignificant amount. Of That's money. right,
1: but but there are consequences to doing this because mm. uh,
0: you know I, I I did
1: see a defender of former President Trump last week say words to the effect of, "Oh, this is just the same thing. It's the equivalent of an overdue library book," and. Well, quite clearly, multiple, you know, mm. scores of boxes of documents is not the same thing, for yes. one thing. And secondly, taking material that's supposed to be in the National Archives is against the law. Um, and, and what's interesting when one reads the biographies of these people, uh, overwhelmingly mm. men, it should be said, mm. <laughs> who, who, who've been accused or have been convicted of stealing stuff from the National Archives,
0: most of them get pretty serious punishments. Yeah, well, the. the, the one one that jumped out to me was a guy who was an intern at the National Archives who was stealing stuff, stole one hundred and sixty Civil War documents, sold them mostly on eBay, um, and he went to prison for fifteen months. I mean, which is a not insignificant amount of time to be in prison, um, but he was angry because the internship was unpaid. <laughs> right, but well, pay your interns, people. That's <laughs> that's the, yeah, the that's the lesson. Pay your Otherwise, interns. they'll steal steal your
1: books. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary how much stuff. What's also incredible, and of course, we don't know. It's what, back to us not mm. knowing what we don't know. Um, most of these people seem to. Most of them seem to be motivated by greed. Mm. You know, they're looking to sell the stuff and make money. They're they're st- stealing rare documents, for which they assume there's a market. There's a recent guy who who stole a lot of stuff just a few years ago, uh, relating to the. Um, uh, service members in, from the Second World War mm. for example and he was clearly and he was selling this stuff on eBay um, dog tags and things like this uh, most of them are seem to be motivated by greed they're not necessarily motivated by a desire to um, betray the country or anything mm. like that and they get caught because they put stuff on eBay
0: yeah <laughs> well and the National Archives has a team of people that go to like rare book or rare book and rare documents uh, auctions and, and vendors to go and try to sort of track track down things that they know are missing or suspect were taken from the National Archives. So so they yeah they got they got a team out there that are looking for you. Don't steal from the National Archives. No
1: is. yeah and, well and I read I read a, um, a story to prepare for this that appeared in Smithsonian. I mean once I got kind of into down this rabbit hole. It's a fascinating part of the internet um, about somebody who stole. Eight million dollars worth of stuff from the Carnegie Library, the Carnegie Library in in, in Pittsburgh, mm. and the Carnegie Library has lots of um, quite rare stuff mm. because Andrew Carnegie uh, collected had, had, stuff, money, in, had money, money and had yeah. money and. So. The guy who was this was an article that appeared in Smithsonian back in September of 2020. Um, the guy who was stealing the stuff was selling it to a rare book dealer in Pittsburgh. Mm. But one of the problems they have, and again, if you work with rare books, you'll have seen this, is you, know, when you open a rare book, there's usually a stamp in it saying, who owns it? Mm-hmm. What library or, or archive uh, holds it? And to get around it, and this makes it very difficult to sell them. You can't just sell them on eBay very easily or sell them on, on, on rare book websites. Mm. The bookseller in question was stamping and you'll have seen this if you go to used books if you go to used bookstores you see it all the time for ex-library books withdrawn Mm. so to kind of
0: make it look like it was no longer yeah yeah
1: even though it was a gutenberg bible (laughs) or something you think well are they really withdrawing this
0: um so so, they didn't have space in the shelves
1: (laughs) but but greed seems to be the the chief motivation um for stealing historic documents i think things are different When it comes to kind of contemporary classified documents and the worry of the FBI and the Justice Department with regard to the documents that were being uh, kept at Mar-a-Lago seems Mm. to have been national security. We don't know what they've taken yet or what they've they've collected. We may never know because they're classified. But their concern wasn't so much theft, I don't think, as the national security implications because of what was contained in those documents.
0: Potentially, we will find out. Hopefully, that in the seems future. to be the,
1: that seems to be the case.
0: You know, a second category of of, of documents that are, are gone are things that are simply misplaced. Right, I think we have lots of documents that are misplaced. Um, some of the fascinating ones that I've uncovered that are that we don't know where they are. The patent for the Wright brothers plane is really? missing. It we knew where it was. Uh, in 1980. Uh, but what had been happening to it is it uh, was um, on display at various National archive sites, the National Archives actually has a bunch of locations now, partially because right. there's so many documents at the Patents and Trademark Office and at the National Air and Space Museum, and it, they moved it around to, for different things. It's gone now. No idea where it is. And that's only in the last forty years. Yeah, yeah it was last seen in nineteen eighty. So the the patent for the the, the Wright brothers flyer is, uh, a wall. Um, the maps that they used to, to target the dropping of the atomic bombs in Second World War in Japan. Those maps are also missing. Those were last seen in nineteen sixty two. They were, I think, given to the, the military, wanted them to put them on display somewhere, and they, they, they went missing. We have no idea where those maps are. Um, and so we have, I think we had lots of documents like that, that that we knew where they were at one point, and then maybe they were stolen, maybe they were misplaced, maybe they're on the bottom of a filing cabinet. Uh, there's lots of records like that that are, are simply uh, falling off the face of the earth.
1: Well, and when you think about any major archive. Yes. That holds thousands or even millions of documents. Yes. Misfiling something is pretty easy.
0: Yes, to be sure. I'm not Uh, suggesting that's that's the the case case here. But but the fact that these are things that that you would think they would have pretty good good track of where they are, the fact they can sort of fall off the face of the earth is interesting. Although you
1: could imagine those types of things being the kinds of things that somebody might steal to sell. Oh, to be sure. And of course, eBay didn't exist in 1980, so you could have, you know, if if you sold the Wright brothers patent to somebody who was an aviation enthusiast, or, you know, a millionaire, mm, sure. It, maybe it's framed and on their wall, wall somewhere.
0: To be sure, one of the more famous misplaced documents, um, and it's obviously a, was a relatively new document at the time, uh, was uh, Robert E. Lee's uh, order. 191 from the the Battle of Antietam. Um, This is a fascinating story. That's a a great thing to to tell students. Uh, For those of you who don't know the story, uh, this is in September of 1862. Robert E. Lee is launching his invasion that's gonna culminate in the invasion of of Maryland. It's gonna culminate in the Battle of Antietam. He divided his army as one needs to do to to, uh, navigate uh, in the 19th century. Uh, And so he sent out orders to his top commanders about here's what we're going to, how how the routes we're going to take and who's going to go where and and what have you. It's a very detailed sort of battle plan about how they're going to split and then uh, reconfigure themselves. A copy of this top secret battle plan was discovered by a Union soldier uh, wrapped around three cigars. Um, And then it gets passed up uh, the chain of command to, to General McClellan who says, now I know what to do. Uh, here's the paper with which I can help whip Bobby Lee. And supposedly, you know, there, there are people who have looked at this who have suggested that without these special secret orders, McClellan may not have been able to defeat Lee uh, at Antietam. Um, whether he did it as effectively as he could have is a matter of some debate there. There's a, uh, McClellan is known for being rather apprehensive uh, in his command um, and this is you know one example where he probably could have acted on the secret information much faster he was also concerned uh, we think that the order might be fake it might be in an effort to, to uh, sort of counterintelligence kind of stuff um, not sure what that's how much that factored into his thinking uh, but it's an interesting case of a you know what happens when a document goes astray um, ends up in, in, in this case, in enemy hands. So
1: is that document now in the National Archives?
0: There are copies of that document that are in the National Archives. I don't know whether the one that was wrapped around the cigars itself is or not is. Right. There, there's fascinating work being done right now, actually trying to sort of look at um, the creation of Civil War Archives, because there was a tremendous project at the end of the 19th century to try to, Create a official record of the War of the Rebellion. It was it was called, and it's a collection that that stretches into hundreds of That's volumes. Massive. It's massive, um, and like basically all Civil War scholarship that has anything to do with military stuff uses this as its sort of main sort of corpus of, of, of material. Uh, but I think historians are increasingly recognizing that that you know the the archive is never neutral. That there are ways in which this Particular set of documents was compiled, and the ways in which it was edited it shaped the ways in which you know historians have interpreted it since then. So we need to deal with it with slightly more care, maybe than than uh, people have heretofore. Uh, the the
1: the story of Lee's Antietam orders uh, makes me think, David, that. Uh, Documents like that are probably becoming increasingly rare. Not, I'm not talking about Civil War orders. Mm. What I mean is that type of document, because in the modern, in the contemporary age, we still need to communicate. Mm. And government officials and soldiers and generals need to communicate and presidents. But increasingly, they're doing so digitally, Yeah, which raises... Interesting questions and challenges provides opportunities. Where we're keep being told the digital stuff is permanent. Of course, technology changes and yeah. stuff gets lost and deteriorates, etc. But one of the things that's a little bit striking about the the Trump story, to me at mm. least, is it's yet more evidence that he's an analog guy in a digital world. The fact mm. that he was sort of stockpiling boxes of paper yeah. <laughs> is quite old fashioned. Whereas I would imagine a lot of the classified material in his White mm. House and other and certainly other White Houses uh, of recent vintage, is electronic.
0: Yeah, It'll be digital. It'll be encrypted. Uh, and, and, and so, that's true mm, with the Obama White House. They had just tons and tons of paper, but they had even more in terms of, of digital material.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, so the, the, the equivalent of, of uh, Lee's orders being wrapped around cigars and mm. dropped prior to IT mm. would be the result of a hack and yes. in advance of mm-hmm. of a of a military operation, not not you wouldn't physically find China. the
0: orders in, yeah, in the same way. I mean, but the, the thing that, that lots of, I think both archivists and historians are concerned about with digital stuff, is you know the nice thing about papers is, assuming the paper does, itself doesn't fall apart or assuming there isn't a fire, it's a pretty usable technology for centuries. Especially, uh, well,
1: you, 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 the, the story you told at the beginning about the endurance, uh, just what happened to the physical constitution, constitution
0: right. is quite striking. It was on pretty good paper, yes. which is why not, it's still around. 18th and 19th century paper is actually really good paper. Yes. 20th century paper is not so good. Not so good. But, you know, there's the whole concern about a sort of digital dark age that that there's going to be material that that you know was, quote-unquote, preserved that we can't read because we don't have the right kind of software, we don't have the right kind of hardware, but... Uh, you know, to, to, to use it. We can think about sort of all the digital material the early history of the Internet. Remember floppy disks? Yeah. Like, well, there's, there's a great example, you know, probably the furthest example I found of this kind of digital loss was in the 1976 uh, Viking Mars landing. So they had magnetic tapes from that landing that were unprocessed. And when they eventually decided to go around and process these magnetic tapes... They discovered one. They didn't know what format the magnetic tapes were on, so they didn't have the sort of tools to use it. The software they... it was Betamax. Yeah, this is pre-Betamax, nineteen <laughs> right? What well, this is like Alpha Max or whatever. Um, uh, they, but they didn't have the, the right kind of stuff to read it. The programmers that had coded the stuff had all left NASA or died, so they had nobody who knew how to like recreate it. Um, and so they had all the stuff that was on material, but they had no... And eventually they figured out how to extract some of the images from uh, this uh, Viking lander. But, you know, they, they also lost a lot of stuff. And that was clearly, you know, very valuable stuff and extracting it was very difficult and expensive. Um, but, you know, thinking about more, more recent stuff, all the, you know, emails that people sent in the 90s, I've no, you know, most of that is gone and evaporated, right? Uh, whether that's government material or privately held material, um, you know, things that are on different kinds of software. I've had stuff where I've written stuff in one format and can't read it anymore because, because you know, word perfect doesn't exist anymore. I um, word perfect. Hey, or you can't find it. Exactly. Or, or yeah, or you can't find a machine that will play it or what have you, right? So there is a archival loss and we can think about going forward, you know, they've put a lot of stuff on CDs. We don't... What will that... What... How viable is that as a format? Yeah, or, I even had a computer that can read a CD in a good two or three computers probably. Right. Um, and, and various floppy drives and, and, you know, one big issue, you know, thinking about this kind of media loss is with film because there's a tremendous amount of film history that has been lost. According to one... Um, historian uh, that I, I found, half of all American films made before 1950 and 90% before 1929 are lost, just completely gone.
1: Um, is that because the film has deteriorated well, or for, it's, burned? It's, or... it's for a couple of
0: reasons. One is uh, there's been a lot of fires and, and the, the film material itself it's is very highly flammable. flammable, so there's been huge fires you know going back in the 20s and the 30s there's actually been a fire in the national archives that kept film uh you know recently and just burned all of the stuff um the other reason it is is that that people were you know thought that the uh, silver nitrate that's on the film could be extracted from it for value and that was more valuable than the film itself uh, but the early history of american cinema yeah, you know, there are some very important films. There's a Hitchcock film that we have no copies of uh, because it was gone. There's lots of Lon Chaney stuff, early silent films, films that were considered big, important films. Nothing left, uh, in part because of, of just the deterioration of the, of the material. Um, so, you know, I think there's that, that sort of speaks to the bigger problem of, of, of archival stuff that's just going to evaporate you know, quite literally in some cases. I think
1: the digital versus analog mm-hmm. question is really interesting in another way, because arguably, we don't live in the information age, we live in the disinformation age. Mm. And, you know, in a period when we can't agree on, you know, who won the last presidential election, I mean, we, we agree. On yeah, yeah. Well, you but agree. Like, yeah. But as a culture, we mm. can't kind of reach a cons- an agreement about that seemingly. Um, there's a... Lot of willing disbelief out there and stuff evidence hmm. should matter. But the one of the great things about digital material is, is theoretically, notwithstanding the concerns you just expressed quite eloquently, theoretically, this stuff can be preserved and disseminated widely. There isn't the same kind of risk as with the original physical constitution, you know, you don't even have to line up to see it the way you have to line up to see the physical constitution. I don't know if you wanted to see uh, documents from the Obama administration, they can be made available on online pretty easily, but because such documentation can also be digitally altered or fabricated, Hmm. or yeah, I think they, I, I, I think there's a challenge in getting people. To accept the provenance of things as well, even uh, and particularly digital material, yeah. and and as techniques of digital editing and manipulation, especially of speech and, and film or images and speech, become more sophisticated, we're either going to become more credulous or more skeptical or both, <laughs> and I I think that will that will be that will be a problem. So it, back to, to answer my original question: yeah, yeah. You know, Why does the original matter? It matters because it's, it's
0: it's the golden copy, right? Yeah. It's the Ur-text. <laughs> it's the Ur-text, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not as if, like, the Constitution, like, the government would cease functioning if the Constitution burned.
1: No, 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 I understand yeah. that. I understand that. But I, it's less the Constitution than yeah. the other material yeah, that it's, we as historians...
0: Jews, yeah, right, right. right exactly.
1: I mean, we're actually lucky that we work in the periods we do. Because the stuff is pretty well-preserved, it's at this point pretty well-organized. Mm. There are still discoveries now and then, but basically sure. we know where most of it is. It's pretty well-preserved and it's preserved in mediums that we can u- we can
0: access. For the most part, yes.
1: Although, microfilm's becoming a problem, but, right? Because yeah, yeah. microfilms is a great way to preserve documents and it was the standard for much of the last century trying to find a microfilm reader in an archive it gets harder and harder certainly one that little print and, yeah and they there
0: they the problem is is less the microfilm which for the most part i've seen is in good condition it's the microfilm readers that no right. one has made any new microfilm readers in years uh and then they can't get the parts for it yeah they're, we
1: can't sorry you can't use that because there's no
0: bulb for it and exactly, the, you know, they stopped making the bulbs bulb. in 1978 exactly right <laughs> and uh which is which is a tragedy um but they're, they're starting to digitize some of that stuff so hopefully uh I don't know. We're in a very interesting place in terms of access to material and what uh, what people can access where and who stuff belongs to. But it belongs to all of us. That's the point, dude. Yes, of course. Yes. It does not belong in... If you have documents, by the way, give them to an archivist that, that, that knows how to take care of them because as as you know, as much as you'd like to have stuff on your wall or in your you know basement or wherever it is...
1: Don't put it in your basement. The FBI might come. <laughs> but... but, but, but. To, quote, Indiana, to quote Dr. Indiana Jones, this belongs <laughs> in <their> a museum.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, he's not always a good... Uh, well, he was stealing stuff. stuff yes, I was thinking he's not a great archaeologist in terms of uh, ethics and practice. Right. Time for Last Drops, Frank. What you got?
1: I want to recommend an article I haven't read. <laughs> As I uh, suggested... Like assigning
0: something to students uh, well, you uh, haven't uh, read. Good. Okay.
1: As I suggested uh, earlier at the beginning of the episode, I'm about to go to the U.S. I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow for a... Brief family holiday, uh, and there's an article I'm taking with me the latest issue of The Atlantic, the, the July-August issue of The Atlantic, and there's an article in there called A Mad Hunt for Civil War Treasure. Did the FBI steal the gold of Dent's Run? And Dent's Run is in Pennsylvania, and I'm literally looking at this article as we speak, uh, or as I speak, and it concerns some uh, guys who who apparently found Civil War era gold in Western Pennsylvania, uh, or in Pennsylvania I should say and um, uh, this FBI might have taken it from them um, as I said I can't I, at a, in a later episode I'll tell you what's in the, the article, article. But, it, but it looks really interesting and I'm going to read it on the plane tomorrow
0: alright, well, I guess that also ties in with our theme here about about whose stuff belongs to and, and Providence and, and I'm and reading a physical magazine, magazine. yes oh, yes, you are okay. <laughs> I am also want to recommend uh, for mine uh, a an article from the, the Atlantic we are not sponsored by the Atlantic, although you want to sponsor us, so that'd be fine. Um, and we did not pre-plan this, but we both just picked Atlantic articles. Mine was by Ian Bagost. It's about the end of the manual transmission. And thinking about sort of technological change and about how that affects things uh, and skill sets that go along with it. In
1: the U.S., because it's very much alive outside of the U.S.
0: It, it is, but, but the projection that he makes in the article is... That you know, right now in the U.S., it's it's very hard to get an, a, a manual transmission car. But he he postulates based on things that car companies are saying that basically around the world, within the next generation or so, the manual transmission will be entirely gone. Well, particularly because the
1: electric vehicles. Exactly. So, so I mean
0: that that that's the and, and it's sort of a he's lamenting uh, the the loss of, of the manual transmission, um, you know and. I think it's a fascinating article. I never actually learned how to drive manual. That's one of my great skills I don't have. Right. Um, and I'm you know, not sure at this point I ever will. But uh, yeah, anyway, I thought it was a well, fascinating piece about how technology changes and what kind of consequences that all has for different kinds of skill sets. Right. right. So, cheers. All right. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a Senior Lecturer in American History at the University of Edinburgh and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Popbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.